Pacifica Radio, this is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour... Melina Abdullah of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles reviews the situation, the police, the jails, the courts, and the news that Jackie Lacey has been forced into a runoff for district attorney by the people. Also, the Kushners and the coronavirus, a report from Amy Willens, our chief Jared correspondent. But first, the primaries on Tuesday this week showed that we have to act now to assure the November elections. Trump Watch starts right now. Maybe you missed the news. Tuesday, there were Democratic primaries in Florida, Illinois, and Arizona. For our analysis, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. And his new book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, will be out on May 5th. We reached him today at home in Madison. John, welcome back. It's good to be with you, John. And I promise uh, when we're through all this, I'm bringing my book tour right to your door in Los Angeles. (laughs) (laughs) Before we talk about the primaries that happened Tuesday and and the one that didn't, I have to ask you about the senator from Wisconsin, Ron Johnson, who is now saying that paid sick leave for people with the coronavirus will make workers lazy. He's opposing the House bill that provides for paid sick leave, which he says is, quote, incentivizing people not to show up for work. You have to think this thing through, he said. That is a quote. Remind us, who is Ron Johnson, and why is he saying these terrible things? Ron Johnson is someone who has very rarely, if ever, thought anything through. Um, (laughs) He is is, is not held up as the intellectual giant of the Senate. Um, or of Washington, and that's that's a that's of course a field in which there's a lot of competition. Um, yes. And he is the classic embodiment of the businessman who goes into politics and thinks he can quote unquote apply the principles of business to politics. Uh, the reality is he's a very wealthy guy who's part of a family business um, that uh, has allowed him to, you know, kind of noodle around in politics. And it happened, he used his own money or a portion of it uh, to put himself in a position where he could win a Senate seat in one very Republican cycle, 2010, and then retain it in uh, the very turbulent cycle of 2016. Uh, But the thing to understand about him is he is, he's not a Donald Trump Republican although he's been exceptionally, almost absurdly loyal to the president, especially uh, during the whole UK- Ukraine controversy. Um, he literally is sort of a, a, an Enron obsessive. Um, and that puts him at the fringe even of the Republican Party. In most cases, you would just laugh at him or you know, be offended by him. But at this point, what he is saying is, is genuinely destructive because he is talking about people who are being told by their president, by their governors, by mayors across this country, that they need to, they need to stay home. Uh, they need not to be 
in workplaces where it's possible the virus could spread. Uh, my neighbor in Wisconsin uh, is a bartender, and uh, she lost her, her work last night. They closed the oh. bars in Wisconsin last night. And the notion that, that we're in some sort of situation where she was incentivized uh, you know, by some government, small government grant that might keep her whole for a, a few weeks not to work. It's not just stupid. It's cruel. Excellent. Well, let's talk about the primaries on Tuesday, and let's start with the one that was supposed to be held that was postponed because of the coronavirus, Ohio. The postponement didn't go that well. It had its own political drama, which I think a lot of people might have missed. It was unbelievable. Voting rights specialists, people who've watched this stuff for years and really, you know, have a lot of experience, have watched it in some, some very chaotic situations and very horrible circumstances, said this, this beat all. It was, it was almost incomprehensibly messed up. And we can talk more deeply about the concept of postponing and delaying, which yeah. is, is one that we don't like, but we can also understand here. So it's not, it's not just to be upset with the postponement. It is how this government or, or this governor, Mike DeWine, did it. He, he waited until the afternoon before the primary. And then he said, well, I, you know, I think we probably shouldn't do this, but I'm going to ask a judge. And the judge, you know, reviewed it and said, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> you know, don't do it because things are already, the, the wheels are already turning. Um, and again, you may disagree with the judge. The judge may have been wrong, but you got that ruling. And so then Mike DeWine, who obviously was assuming the judge would side with him, turned around an hour or so later and has his, you know, health administrator, a state employee, declare it's a public health problem. And so they shut the primary down anyway. Then, you know, candidates who were on the ballot, a candidate who was on the ballot, moved an urgent court action. This is literally late night on the eve of the voting appealed it to the state Supreme Court, and the state Supreme Court reviewed it and very quickly came down with a ruling on the morning of Election Day saying that you could delay the election. So you had this incredible chaos, and voters have got a lot of things on their mind right now. There's a yeah. lot going on. And so yeah. people who really wanted to go vote or who were thinking about it, whatever, you know, suddenly they're hit with this just chaos. So this was done in exactly the wrong way. No matter what you think about postponement, it was just done precisely wrong. And then let's talk about the primaries that did happen. How did the virus affect the voting in, the, in Arizona, in Illinois, in Florida? A lot. It, it was different in different places. Now, here's where we start to get real important measures on how we might approach these things going forward. In Arizona and Florida, they have a lot of early voting and a lot of mail voting. And as a result, uh, they got a lot of ballots in before things started to really, you know, spiral out of control. And frankly, before, even as things were getting rougher, because people who had a mail ballot were able to fill it out, get it in. Um, you also had some heroic uh, election officials in Arizona who, you know, went to the Matt trying to make sure this thing would work. And so high marks to them. But it was still a lot of complaints in both states and uh, situations where people couldn't find polling places that had closed. People 
uh, poll workers who <laughs> had been told to, that you shouldn't be going out in crowds decided not to go out in crowds. And so they didn't have enough poll yeah. workers. The biggest problems were in Illinois. They also have some structures for absentee voting, things like that, but but still much more of a tradition of in-person voting. And uh, it was just a mess. Uh, they had situations where poll workers did not show up, and literally people came to polling places that just had a sign that said nobody showed up. They had circumstances where uh, election officials in Chicago were literally saying, you know, as you went into as the, as the polls were opening, hey, if, if you can be an election clerk, we'll swear you in right there. And then as you went into the day, there were complaints from all over from poll workers who were saying, look, we don't have the, the equipment we need. We don't have the materials we need. They actually kept the polls open for quite a while in sh- longer in Chicago uh, because uh, they were you know, struggling to, to, to make this thing work. So problems are real. We need to have elections. What is to be done? Yeah, that's the core question. And we're really in uncharted territory. I did a piece for the magazine this week where I talked to a, a lot of the best people, I would argue, in the country on these issues. Folks like Congressman Jamie Raskin and Dale Ho from uh, the ACLU and, and, and folks from the Brennan Center. And, you know, look, they were all nuanced and, and reasonable and they understood the complexity of the moment we're in. Uh, but at, at a certain point, they came down to sort of two basic conclusions. One, postponement of a regularly scheduled election is something we should never be casual about because regularly scheduled elections are sort of a, a, a core underpinning of our democracy. So that's something you do as a last choice. And if you can find ways to avoid a postponement or a delay, that's great. That's that's superb. And if you've got time, the best way to do it is to implement uh, a combination of interventions, which are, first and foremost, no excuses absentee voting. Second, a huge infrastructure for mail voting, i.e. you mail the ballots to the people, they can mail them back. And then probably a little bit of flexibility for some maintenance of in-person voting, but in a very, very well-structured model, probably with a lot of early voting. And that's for folks who, for whatever reason, still go that way. But the, the heart of it is the, the mail voting. And here's the fascinating thing, John. The state of Washington, which was the early epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak around, you know, in the Kirkland area, yeah. Uh, yeah. They, they ran a whole election after the state of emergency had been declared at, at a point when businesses were telling people not to come in to work, when some schools were starting to shut down. You understand that in Washington state, they were way ahead of where a lot of the, other, the rest of the country is on the, the, the concern about the spread of this virus. And yet they conducted a whole election uh, successfully with actually a, a very good turnout. And the reason for that is because they have all mail voting. So when mm-hmm. you do it all by mail, it, it functions. So the message here is be like Washington state, but a lot of states are not like Washington state. Exactly. Some states are not up to speed. Some of them actually have rules and laws that make it very, very hard uh, to do early voting, absentee voting, a lot of other things. Some have sort of a little bit of vote by mail, but not a sufficient infrastructure for it. A lot of them are very stressed as regards resources. And the bottom line is 
they now are getting incredibly conflicting messages, right? Don't have 50 people, don't have 10 people in a space, but then have a mass turnout election. And so are we going to have postponements? Whether you like it or not, the answer is yes. And that is, that then takes us to a next stage of this. Uh, And that is, we need to have protocols and procedures for how we maintain the primaries. uh, And then we ought to take all of this, put it in a box, pause, take a deep breath, and recognize that while you can have some flexibility as regards primary dates, you can move them, they have been moved, that does happen. The November election, you can't can't have an option of delaying it, of of postponing it. That is incredibly damaging. And so what we need to do right now is take the advice of Ron Wyden, the senator from Oregon, and some other members uh, who have a bill in Congress right now, and the variations between the Senate and the House, but basically the same thing, that would really push toward vote by mail, give the states the resources to do it, and make this thing work. Um, We are not, in my opinion, in a position where we're going to see an election postponed or delayed. That's not what I would imagine would happen. But what I could imagine happening is that it would if we had a lingering virus problem, hopefully not, or a situation where the virus eased in the summer but then returned in the fall, hopefully not. But if by chance something like that happened, we could end up with a very low turnout election that is is just a completely unacceptable circumstance. Just a quick two more minutes. The outcome of the election was that Bernie lost pretty decisively in all the states that voted on Tuesday. What's left for Bernie at this point? Bernie Sanders has said, in conjunction with his campaign, that they're going to assess uh, how to go forward, and they're going to do it in consultation with their supporters. That is a classic Bernie Sanders approach. This is... You know, he has a slogan for his campaign, not me, us. And that really is where he's at. He is a movement political figure. Uh, It's it's how he thinks about it. And so you're going to see a lot of consultation. You're going to see a lot of listening to his supporters. And frankly, um, you'll probably see some push and pull. You know, some people who really want to go forward, some people who think that that it's just, you know, it's just not a doable thing. Um, It's all going to be run against the reality of this, uh, you know, coronavirus outbreak, all the responses to it, and the chance that things could get worse before they get better. Um, that's going to create a lot of pressure on him. Uh, I can tell you as somebody who's interviewed him a lot, who's been around him a lot, he's somebody who can handle that pressure. He will work his way through it. He will talk to a lot of people, and he will figure out an approach. And what it will be, I can't tell you, because right now, John, if you're making predictions about anything, you know, be it healthcare, economics, or politics, uh, you're a much braver person than I. But I do want to emphasize that that for Sanders, this really is a, a a not me us moment, and he'll think about that on a lot of levels and make a decision that that I would expect, you know, whether he continues his candidacy or suspends. But I would suspect still aims in a big way at influencing the platform of the party, its trajectory forward, 
so for those who don't like Bernie Sanders, I would have a message. I would not presume for a second that he's going away. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. John, it's always great to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm John Wiener, and this is Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. We'll have more in a minute when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Now it's time to talk about Black Lives Matter in Los Angeles with Melina Abdullah. She's a co-founder of the L.A. chapter, and she's professor of Pan-African Studies at Cal State L.A. She's appeared on MSNBC, CNN, ABC, PBS, and she's also a host of Beautiful Struggle on KPFK. Melina, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Well, the coronavirus, of course, is changing almost everything, including the jails, the courts, the police. We need to talk about all that. But before the virus hit, Black Lives Matter fought hard for two things on the ballot in Los Angeles. First of all, forcing the DA Jackie Lacey into a runoff. Uh, The news today is that you seem to have succeeded. Congratulations on that. Thank you so much. We're definitely celebrating that victory. And you yourself got onto page one of the papers before Election Day in a way that was not exactly what you had planned. Tell us what happened. So the day before Election Day, early Monday morning, we went to Jackie Lacey's home, which is in Granada Hills. So it's um, kind of out from the city. And we've been there before. This is a standard kind of way that people protest um, uh, public officials. Um, I think the first time I went to a public official's home was with my labor union when we went to Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger's residence and did a protest there, right? And so, you know, public officials don't have the same expectations or shouldn't have the same expectations or rights to privacy as private citizens. That's why they're public officials. And so we went to her home Um, at about six o'clock in the morning, a little before 6 a.m. And she had committed to having a public meeting in Black Los Angeles um, by December 1st. She did not have that meeting despite repeated calls for that meeting. So she committed to having that meeting to um, some of our comrades in Stonewall Democratic Club who stood in solidarity with Black Lives Matter and said, why won't you meet with black folks. Why are you coming to West Hollywood? Why won't you meet with black folks? Because we had some of the families of those who've been killed by police at their meeting and had been outreaching to them. And so she failed to follow through on her commitment to have this meeting. And so we said, well, let's bring the meeting to her. And so we actually chartered a bus. We put about uh, 30 of our folks on the bus and pulled up to her house and pulled out 30 chairs, 25, 30 chairs, and set them up on her front side walk um, and intended to force the meeting. Um, And so I said, well, let's invite her. And I did so kind of nonchalantly, not thinking much of it, walked to the door with um, one of our comrades from White People for Black Lives. And we had one other person was um, filming 
and rang the doorbell. So she has a ring doorbell system, which is kind of like a surveillance system. You can see who's at the door. You're on camera when you ring that bell. And she's very familiar with me and with all of us. We protest outside her office every single Wednesday. We've been protesting outside her office for two and a half years. Um, We even had a protest yesterday. So she knows me. Um, We've also had meetings and other interactions. It's not like she thought I was an intruder. So ring the doorbell. um, And she actually had two doorbells. So we rang both of them twice. Um, You know, rang them, paused for a minute, rang them again. And we hear something at the front door. And it sounds like a gun being cocked. But Uh I thought I was being paranoid. So I look at my comrade Dahlia and I said, oh, that doesn't sound good. But I was kind (laughs) of half joking. Yeah. And the door flings open and it's her husband with the first thing out the door is this huge handgun pointed directly at us, kind of panning the three of us. Um, And then I don't know what came over me. I just said, good morning. Right. And, um, everybody can see it. It went viral. The video went viral. And um, he says, get off my porch. And I said, um, can you let Jackie Lacey know that we're here or something like that? And then he, he kind of trains the gun on my chest. Um, and we're in very close proximity. His fingers on the trigger. We had heard the gun being cocked. So we know it's loaded. I said, are you going to shoot me? And he says, I will shoot you. Get off my porch. I don't care who you are. And it was something along those lines. The exact details are on the video, right? The whole interaction lasted less than 30 seconds, but had, you know, of course, an enduring impact. I've never been threatened in that way in my life. And That's certainly not what we expected going to the home of a public official in protest, even if people don't agree with the protest. Right. That's not the expectation of a protester. And this was then front page news. The video went viral. And the next day, the L.A. Times had a second page one story, this one by Steve Lopez. And the headline was, quote, I will shoot you isn't a great campaign slogan for D.A. Jackie Lacey, close quote. That was on election day. And your goal was to uh, force her into a runoff, which, as we said, you've succeeded. Jackie Lacey is the, I believe, the only black woman ever elected district attorney in the United States. Why didn't Black Lives Matter support the black woman DA running for re-election in Los Angeles? Well, she's not the first, the only black woman DA. So, you know, we have Marlon Mosby in Baltimore. There's a few others, Um, uh, Kim Fox in Chicago. Um, So she's not the only. However, you know, she is one of a few. It's really important that when we talk about representation, Lonnie Guineer writes about this all the time, um, and I think most poignantly in Tyranny of the Majority, when she talks about authentic versus descriptive representation. So, you know, we can have descriptive representatives, right? There can be Black folks who um, are elected to office, but 
represent their own personal ambition rather than representing the collective interests of black people. And that really doesn't do anything for black advancement. In our view, Jackie Lacey is a descriptive representative. She is not an authentic representative. She has not been willing to even meet with the families of those killed by police. She's been someone who's been backed by um, one of the most murderous, uh, the most murderous uh, police forces in the nation, including LAPD and LA County sheriffs, both of whom are her largest um, campaign contributors. So LAPD, um, uh, LA Police Protective League, which is their um, officer association, gave her a million dollars for her reelection. Um, ALADS, which is the association for the LA County Sheriffs, gave her 850000 um, wow. And so this is, you know, who's backing her. So in the words of um, one of our um, most revered scholars and writers, Zora Neale Hurston, all skin folk and kin folk. So just because <laughs> she okay. happens to be black doesn't mean she represents black interests. And the candidate who will be facing Jackie Lacey in the coming runoff, George Gascon, is a white man, a former L.A. cop, an assistant chief, who later became police chief in San Francisco and then the San Francisco D.A. Um, So I just want to be very clear, Black Lives Matter does not endorse candidates. So this was absolutely a an effort to oust Jackie Lacey. This is an effort to oust Jackie Lacey as one of the most corrupt and problematic DAs in the country. This is not an endorsement for, of her opponent. Of course, you know, if we oust her, someone will have to replace her. Um, we know that whoever replaces her will be on notice and know that they're going to be held accountable too. Um, With regard to George Gascon, you're bringing up some really important points. You know, he is a former cop, right? He um, wasn't necessarily beloved in San Francisco. Um, And it doesn't mean that, you know, him replacing Lacey doesn't mean that we shouldn't be critical of him. Um, At the same time, we think it's very difficult, if not impossible, to be worse than Lacey. And so looking at like Gascon's record, you know, there are things that we um, do see as kind of uh, points of hope that he was um, one of the people most supportive of Prop 47, that he in its early forms um, uh, supported AB 392 and continued through the end. 392 is the, the recently passed law that changes the use of force standards for police. He's yes, I affect- want to talk about that. I want to talk about that in a minute. And tell us what 47 was. 47 um, really was uh, an effort to decriminalize nonviolent crime and move people out of the system of mass incarceration. And so a big effort for Gascon, and again, this is not an endorsement, um, but just we want to be critical as well as hopeful, right? Um, and, And so it's important to understand that Gascon, as district attorney of San Francisco, had some huge problems. People in San Francisco were pissed at him 
about um, his treatment of the Mario Woods case, Mario Woods murdered by San Francisco police. And then those police were not prosecuted. The same thing that we're protesting Jackie Lacey for. The difference is there aren't 585 murders that he refused to prosecute, right? The volume mm-hmm. is different, but also the willingness. Um, we also know that Gascon has pledged to um, uh, decarcerate. So he doesn't want to feed the system or he claims to not want to feed the system of mass incarceration. He wants to decarcerate. And we have seen in San Francisco County where he was DA, virtually no, beginning with youth. So virtually no youth incarcerated in San Francisco County. I think there's a total of maybe 21 youth being held currently and they shut down the juvenile hall. So this idea that, you know, um, uh, criminalization and incarceration are not the best solutions um, is something that we're supportive of. And it seems like we're in alignment with that said, we will have to criticize him. And we've had lots of conversations with him leading up um, public conversations, meetings with families. And we put him on notice that we're probably going to have to protest you too. And he gets that. One more thing we haven't talked about The death penalty, Jackie Lacey and her opponent. Yeah, so we have um, Gascon is not in favor of the death penalty. Um, Lacey is heavily in favor of the death penalty. So far, she's sent 22 people to death row, all of them people of color. Um, We also know that she continues to try people using the death penalty even after... um, uh, Our governor, Governor Newsom, declared a moratorium on the death penalty. She continues to utilize it out of her office. And so this is something that's um, not only problematic, and I think people are awakening to, especially with new films like Just Mercy and books, of course, like Just Mercy and uh, the work, incredible work of Brian Stevenson and others. Um, So people are awakening to it, but also... Um, you know, the inhumanity of it, but also there's the piece of embedded racism in the way in which the death penalty is being utilized. 22 death penalty cases, all of them people of color. We know people like Mumia Abu-Jamal and others have been writing about, you know, what the death penalty means for black people. And it's important that we elect someone, have someone who understands the way in which the death penalty is not only state-sponsored murder, um, like in its truest sense, but also, um, you know, is the perpetuation of racism. Most recently, we saw it carried out with Nate Woods. So we've been talking here about electoral politics, but Black Lives Matter is basically not uh, a a voting group. Uh, What is... Let's talk about your perspective on the relationship between protest and politics. Black Lives Matter does believe in voting as a tool of liberation, but we also know that no group of people have ever voted themselves into freedom, right? It requires um, engaged action on the ground. So um, it, rather than moving from protest to politics, we believe in protest and politics. We will absolutely vote, but we're not giving up our right to protest. And 
um, our duty, our sacred duty to protest. So the idea of being constantly outside of Jackie Lacey's office, we know that the reason that she was forced into a runoff is because of our ongoing and consistent protest. We know that protest is what raises issues, right? If we think about even the presidential race, um, many of the things that Bernie Sanders and other more uh, radical candidates were talking about were raised only because they had the power of people behind them, not only as folks who were going to the voter booth, but also as folks who were willing to call out injustice. And so um, in Black Lives Matter, what we believe in is um, the power of disruption, that we can't allow business as usual to continue when Black people are being killed and targeted by the state. And so it's why we sometimes make people uncomfortable when we have a protest at a mall or a um, shutdown at a restaurant. You know, people are not happy with us, but that's the point. You shouldn't be able to have your peaceful, quiet brunch while people are being killed. And so um, that's um, at the hands of police, right? And so that's why we continue to do the work in the way that we do, um, saying, yes, we're, we're voting. Yes, we're lobbying elected officials. Yes, we're putting phone calls into their offices. Yes, we show up in mass to public meetings. And we will also, you know, engage in public protest. And now we have the coronavirus. It's changing a lot about how criminal justice is practiced here. The LA Times reports that the LAPD made fewer arrests during the first 15 days of March. The LA sheriffs uh, have announced that their arrests have plummeted from a daily average of 300 to 60. The courts have closed. What is your perspective on, on all of this? Well, I, I think that that's great that arrests are down. We think that our communities are over-policed anyway. I think that it's important, though, as we're talking about what is really a healthcare and economic, I was very troubled by LAPD and LA County sheriffs asking for more money and by um, the announcement of the mayor that he'd be putting more police on the streets. And so it's really important that as we're looking at a healthcare and economic crisis, that we invest in those things that actually um, remedy those issues, right? So we need more public health workers. We need more EMTs. We need mental health providers. We need housing, right? When we're talking about a uh, public health crisis, the idea that we have 60,000 unhoused folks on our streets and we're doing very little to provide new housing. I know there's a moratorium on evictions, but it's important to think about what does it mean that we still have these massive encampments, people living in tents and being criminalized for doing so, lack of hand washing stations, right? What does it mean for our public health when we're refusing to house folks? And so I think that we need to um, be thinking about, and not just thinking about, but immediately responding to those needs. So I'm disturbed that um, Mayor Garcetti sees police as a remedy to public health and economic crises um, rather than investing in the spaces that we need to invest in. Just to be very clear, LA has enough housing to house everyone, right? There's um, ample 
um, units that are not being occupied. I'm loving what Reclaim LA is doing, where we have now nine families who've moved into a neighborhood in El Sereno, publicly held vacant housing that's just sitting there and has been sitting there for almost 10 years. People are saying, no, it's not okay that we're unhoused. We're taking over these vacant units. And I think that there should be a public response that enables that to happen, that immediately fixes up um, these vacant units for occupancy. And some of the most vulnerable people to the coronavirus are, are the people who are incarcerated. Yes. So we are part of Justice LA and... So we put a call out. Push LA has put out a call to um, pull back resources from police and put them into the things that actually make communities safe. We don't want to over-criminalize neighborhoods, especially black, brown, and poor neighborhoods in this time of a healthcare crisis. Justice LA has also put out a statement saying that all pre-trial folks being held pre-trial should be immediately released from our jails. So we know that we have the, the majority of those who are in jail are in jail and have not been convicted of a crime. They're being held because they don't have the money for bail. And so those folks should be released. Those folks who are um, convicted of nonviolent violent crimes should be released. We're seeing what's happening nationally. We just had a case of COVID-19 in Rikers Island. And mm. we know how quickly that will spread through jails and prisons. And so we want to decarcerate as much as possible. Most of the people who are in prison and jails are not there because they pose any viable threat to communities. And so if we're gonna practice social distancing, we need to practice social distancing wholesale and say that our people who are being held behind bars need to be kept safe as well. And this is part of the larger meaning of Black Lives Matter. It's not only people who have been killed by uh, the police, it's people who are incarcerated, who have been convicted of crimes, their lives matter too. Yes, Black Lives Matter believes all Black Lives Matter, Black queer lives, Black trans lives, Black incarcerated lives, Black elder lives, all Black lives matter. And we know that when Black lives matter, it extends out to everyone else, which is why when we talk about the Jackie Lacey protests, we're definitely grounded in families like the family, the powerful mother of John Horton, sister Helen Jones, and um, Waukesha Wilson's family. We're coming up on the um, four-year anniversary of Waukesha Wilson's murder inside um, LA Metro Detention Center. Black folks who've been targeted by the state, but that extends out to other folks. So as we stand outside on Wednesdays at four o'clock, um, you know, and now we're starting to move those protests online. We had one person out yesterday and the rest of us were all on an IG uh, Instagram live session, which was really, really powerful and beautiful. We also know that joining us are people like the father of Jesse Romero, who was a 14-year-old Latinx boy who was murdered in Boyle Heights. We have the family of Anthony Vargas, um, who was a 21-year-old young Latino male who was actually doing work to benefit his community when he was murdered by LA County sheriffs. So as Black lives begin to matter to our world, so does every other life. And I also want to ask about 
what are your priorities now that the coronavirus requires this six feet of social distancing and encouraging people to stay home? The traditional forms of protest are are becoming more of a problem now. So how are you handling the coronavirus? So what's incredible is we've had now two online forums. We had one on Tuesday, March 17th, called Black People in the Coronavirus. This is not a drill. And we had incredible experts on talking about the coronavirus, trying to dispel some of the conspiracy theories that are rampant, talking about how Black people can love and protect one another, engaging in mutual aid, that kind of thing. And that was watched by over a thousand viewers. Um, wow. And it was a way for us to really reach beyond what we could have done. Normally, we would have done it as an in-person gathering and maybe had a hundred folks, but we were able to reach over a thousand folks. Um, yesterday, we had our first virtual protest of Jackie Lacey, also on Instagram Live. So we had one person, because we didn't want to give up our in-person protest. One person <laughs> actually in front of the Hall of Justice at our normal time. It was the cousin of John Horton who was killed inside Men's Central Jail. She was there and she chanted by herself in front. But <laughs> we also had 402 people join our Instagram live. Normally our gatherings are about 50 people. And so we think that um, through technology, coupled with, you know, ongoing personal check-ins because we can't, you know, completely st substitute human care for, you know, uh, we can't substitute technology for human care. Um, but we're actually reaching a wider audience. And then finally, with people home, you know, we're encouraging people to do what we do, which is engage with the people that you know. We still have to prepare for the November runoff, right? So pushing... Jackie Lacey into a runoff was goal number one. Goal number two is getting her out of office. We don't have a million dollars from LA Police Protective League or 850,000 from the Sheriff's Association, right? So what we have is the power of people. We're encouraging everybody to engage with their relationships, call people and tell them why it's important to vote Jackie Lacey out, send personal texts, have conversations. And so that's how we're continuing to engage. And, you know, the protest doesn't stop just because we're socially distant. There's other ways of doing the work. Uh, let me ask a little about you. What was your path to becoming an activist? Were you marching in the streets as a kid? I was. I was marching in the streets as a kid. So I'm from Oakland, California, and I was born in the 70s, even though that... Uh, Still makes me 29, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, being raised um, in what's, you know, most of us in Oakland call the Panther Cub generation, right? We're mm. all the children of activists, right? And my, my parents weren't actually Panthers, but helped to support some of the survival programs. Um, it, we were raised in a in a space of consciousness. And so I don't remember, people often ask, well, what was your moment of coming into activism? I was born into it. It wasn't, um, there was no moment of coming into it. My mother was a community other mother. 
um, regularly had children on her front porch teaching him to read, um, regularly providing resources for the community. My father was a labor organizer. He was a carpenter and um, very active in his union. I remember marching on picket lines with hard hats when I could barely walk. And so there was no moment of consciousness raising or no moment of becoming an activist. Um, I can say that Black Lives Matter is different for me than all of the rest. So while I was president protests my entire life, kind of um, taking on responsibility for organizing movement really happened for me, um, I think in earnest with the birth of Black Lives Matter. I don't think any of us knew what BLM would really mean. Like we, um, after the murder of Trayvon Martin, when Patrice Cullors called us together, and to be clear, Black Lives Matter was born here in Los Angeles. Um, so we were the first chapter. When we came together um, for our first meeting, just two days after Zimmerman had been acquitted in that murder, um, we pledged to build a movement, not a moment. And it felt right at the time, and we were deeply committed at the time, but almost seven years later, I don't think that any of us knew how our lives would transform. And so I think that was a moment of transformation for me, was um, making that commitment and really um, the lives of myself, my children, and all the other organizers have changed dramatically in making that pledge. Finally, a, a personal question. You work every day with mothers whose sons have been killed by the police. It's got to be very hard. You know, you've got to be facing rage and, you know, despair every day. How do you keep going? How do you, how do, you do it? Yeah, I mean, I work closely with families of those who've been killed. And so there's sons and daughters and mothers and fathers and you know, and it's um, heartbreaking and enraging um, watching videos and hearing the stories. Um, but the stories are also uplifting. So as we struggle for justice for Waukesha Wilson, who was murdered on March, March 27th of 2016, um, it's really important that we... Um, hear the stories of why are we fighting for Waukesha. So I love sitting and engaging with her mom, sister Lisa Hines, and her auntie, sister Sheila Hines, who tells stories about, you know, why, why her nickname is Weebo, because she had little legs that made her look like a Weeble Wobble when she was <laughs> walking <laughs> as a child, right? And so they would say Weeble Wobble, but she don't fall down, right? Mm, mm. And so, like, hearing about who these folks are, right? Meeting the children of Riddell Jones, um, Sakari and Dartanian, who are her two children, are have become like um, extended family to me. And, you know, there's a lot of love in the movement, right? Getting to know Keith Bercy's daughter, um, Kisana, who's a gifted violinist and on her way to college. And um, his grandmother, who just is the epitome of what Black motherhood and grandmotherhood is, um, I think that we draw strength from each other. There's 
a whole lot of love in the movement. And we've tried to build a movement that's loving and supportive. And so in the midst of our rage and our struggle and our pain, there's also each other, there's spiritual energy that we generate. Um, And Black Lives Matter is also, uh, we practice group-centered leadership, which means that, you know, there's hundreds of us and some of us are really funny. And (laughs) some of us are artists. I think about Yasmin Monet Watkins, who's one of the best poets I've ever heard, right? Giving her art or people like Fumi Lola Fagbamila who give her words or, um, you know, we have a singing, cussing pastor, Evan Regi Bunch, who offers Mm -hmm. some of the best prayers you could ever imagine. And we find love and support and joy, even in the midst of pain. Melina Abdullah, she's one of the founders of Black Lives Matter in L.A. Melina, thank you for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Now it's time to talk about the Kushners and the coronavirus. And for that, of course, we turn to Amy Willens. She's a former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker and a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, best known for her work on Haiti, most recently the award-winning book Farewell, Fred Voodoo. She's also our chief Jared correspondent. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. There is a story we've been following avidly about how Jared Kushner, even though he's not in charge of the White House response to the coronavirus, took it upon himself to uh, reach out to gather uh, information about what they should do. And where did he turn for help? Well, he's not in charge, but he's sort of being tasked with research by the White House. And he turned to someone, well, we have a word for this kind of family relationship in Yiddish or in Hebrew. It's called machaton. <laughs> it's okay. It's a little complicated. This is Jared's brother's wife's father. <laughs> okay. okay. That's it. And, uh, Jared's brother is Josh Kushner, and Josh Kushner is married to the supermodel Carly Kloss, and Carly Kloss's father happens to be um, an emergency room doctor in New York with 30 years' experience. So uh, I guess Jared asked by Trump to figure out what the heck to do because Pence is just so bad at running the response to the coronavirus went to this guy, his brother's father-in-law, and said, what can you tell me? Do you have any any recommendations? So the the uh, father-in-law of Josh Kushner, Kurt Kloss, Dr. Kurt Kloss, went onto a Facebook group called something like EM Doc. Um, and it's, it's a big Facebook group of emergency room doctors. And uh, he asked whether um, they had any recommendations to make to his very good connection to someone in the White House. <laughs> and they responded all evening with all sorts of uh, 
ideas. He calls them, and they are called among themselves, if I can use swear words, they are called Baffords, the doctors on this group, or badass fucking emergency room doctors. Baffords. <laughs> and that's the word that they use among themselves there. And they gave them a lot of good recommendations, I thought, when I read the list of recommendations. But most of them don't seem to have been taken by the White House yet, if they ever are. But it's kind of a weird thing, right, to go to a sort of boomer online chat room, basically, and and get recommendations there when you have something called the CDC. Well, this takes us into the interesting territory of the good Kushners, Jared's brother, Josh, <laughs> and his wife, Carly Kloss. And they're, they're sort of prominent liberals. They make clear they don't vote for uh, Jared's father-in-law. And Carly Kloss, supermodel, I mean, everybody in this family has to marry supermodels, but uh, she <laughs> is different from a lot of supermodels. Tell us about Carly Kloss. Well, she's sort of different from a lot of supermodels, but she's done some special things. She, first of all, she married into this crazy family of the Kushners. They wouldn't even, the parents wouldn't even speak to her for the six years while they were going out until she converted to Judaism, which she finally did do. She's a lifelong Democrat who says it's pretty weird being uh, related to Jared and, and Ivanka. And she then went to NYU uh, and is getting a degree there or got a degree there. And while she was there and uh, as a model for Victoria's Secret, it dawned on her because she was taking a course on feminist thought. Maybe being a model at Victoria's Secret was not in line with feminist thinking over the years. And she actually ended her contract. She she stayed in her contract to the end and then did not re-up, even though it's, of course, a hugely valuable deal for a supermodel. So she's come to things, perhaps, to thinking about things, serious things, a little late. But she at least is really thinking about serious things. They are pro-gun control. They're just very typical New York liberals. So Carly Kloss quit working for Victoria's Secret after taking a course on feminism at NYU. As professors, this has to warm our hearts. Yes, it does. And I wish she were my student. Also, she did this cool thing. I think the name of it was... Coding with Carly. Now, yeah. she's a supermodel, and therefore she's kind of a, you know, celebrity figure. And so she decided that girls weren't learning to code well enough, and she put together this group that teaches girls to code. So that's a, a great thing, too, I think. Getting back to the Kushners and the coronavirus, we need to check in on how Ivanka is doing well, you know how Ivanka is always going to like meetings that no one can figure out why Ivanka should be there, etc. Yeah. So she yes. went to one recently in Australia, and I forget who the Australian official was standing next to her, but um, he stood there in a photograph, and then it turned out he tested positive for the virus. So she's working from home because she's one step away from from the virus. But apparently hasn't been tested yet, which is weird because the Trump family seems almost preternaturally able to get tests where no one else can. 
So Ivanka is working from home since she may have been exposed to the coronavirus. And then, of course, there's uh, the number one son, Don Jr. What's Don Jr. been doing with about the coronavirus? Well, baby Don is pretty much out there. Uh, and what he has been asserting on the news, basically on the sort of news, is that um, – the Democrats hope that the disease will kill millions of Americans. The story is uh, Trump was doing great. The economy was going great guns. The Democrats were in disarray. Obviously, there was nothing to do but cause a giant pandemic worldwide that would destroy the economy and kill millions of Americans. And that's what the Democrats want. So Don kind of has stepped back a little bit from this. But when... This is my favorite. When Mike Pence was asked about Trump Jr.'s remarks, he said, when you see voices on our side pushing back on outrageous and irresponsible rhetoric on the other side, I think it's important and I think it's justified, meaning it was justified to say that Democrats want to kill millions. Just, you know, unbelievable stuff. So Jared has not only been tasked with finding out something about responding to the coronavirus, he's got some other uh, assignments, too, doesn't he, at the White House? When you think of his plate, it's like a, a plate at a UJA dinner. It's filled with a billion, <laughs> you know, and it has one little tiny, tiny area left for coronavirus. So he's in charge of peace negotiations between Israel and Palestine. We have to think about how well that's going. Uh, he's in charge of getting a wall built between the U.S. and Mexico, little by little. He's tackling the opioid epidemic. I mean, these are things that they have given him to do. He's reducing mass incarceration, supposedly, and he's overhauling the federal bureaucracy. So why not to put a little room between the potatoes and the roast beef uh, for coronavirus? <laughs> Amy Willens, our chief Jared correspondent. Amy, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. Our show is produced at KPFK in Los Angeles. Our producer is Renee Reynolds. Our senior producer is Alan Minsky. And thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.